I took the opportunity just while uh, Bo was uh, reading just to sneak out. And as I did, um, I just felt I wanted to say this morning that you are good news, that you are good news. I don't know if there's somebody here, particularly this morning, used to hear that. I don't know if there's somebody who maybe grew up in an environment where you were told or, or recently are working perhaps in an environment where you've been told that you're not good news, that you're bad news. I just felt like the Lord wants to say this morning to us together that you are good news. And of course, we know he is good news. Uh, Jesus is the answer uh, to every quiz question ever posed in the church, and, and that's true, but, but you are good news, that God wants to say to you today that you're good news. Let me pray as we begin, <clears throat> uh, particularly in that way. Father, we thank you uh, that uh, because of your good news, we have become good news to the world. And we pray that you would put that truth right at the heart of every one of us now. That your good news makes us good news. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, someone who has been a great encouragement to me in my Christian life over the last sort of 10 or so years um, has been a guy called Brennan Manning. Anybody heard that name before? A few nods, a few people with uh, hands just at shoulder level, <clears throat> because we can't show too much enthusiasm on a Sunday morning. Yes, Brennan Manning. Now, for those of you who don't know Brennan, uh, or uh, Richard Manning as he was born, uh, Richie, uh, Brennan Manning was uh, a fascinating character. He was an incredible preacher, an immensely powerful preacher, and if you have any time, uh, and are given to YouTube, maybe you're not fasting YouTube this Lent, uh, and you find yourself looking for something to do, um, well, don't look at old videos of Zinedine Zidane doing stepovers. Go and look at Brennan Manning and look at his preaching, um, because he's an incredible uh, preacher. He was immensely powerful, but he had a remarkable life in so many different ways. He experienced uh, an immensely traumatic childhood. He had a loveless childhood. His childhood was, was one where he was covered by his parents uh, in shame. Born into an alcoholic environment, immensely chaotic environment. And it was, it was loveless. It was very, very difficult. And he came out of that, as you would expect, incredibly broken. Deeply broken uh, <clears throat> as a young man. And he became an alcoholic. He, he joined the, the Marines, joined the Army, uh, and the Marines, and that was sort of uh, where he discovered really alcohol and, and discovered sort of leaning on, on alcohol in that way. He then was sort of looking for another institution, I guess, to father him. And so it was that he ended up becoming a Catholic priest. And even that journey for him was deeply uh, conflicted, but he became a priest and he was ordained as a Catholic priest. Now, after that, uh, Brennan Manning didn't get it all right. His, 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 you know, he wasn't ordained and then his life just was fixed, far from it. In fact, uh, Brennan Manning had uh, difficulty in his relationship with alcohol throughout his life. He eventually left the priesthood in order to get married to somebody he'd fallen in love with. Of course, as a Catholic priest, you can't be married, so he felt he wanted to do that. So he left the priesthood and got married, but his alcohol affected his marriage, and eventually his marriage ended 
he got divorced. He would preach to thousands of people about grace. I mean, the message of grace that he carried really was extraordinary. And he would preach to thousands of people about grace and then go home or go to his hotel room and just get smashed on alcohol. And yet he remained throughout his life A man convinced, absolutely convinced at bedrock level, foundational level of the love of God. And whenever you hear him speak, and I do encourage you to do that, whenever you hear him speak, you just hear it coming through. It's just so powerful. This is what Brennan said in his autobiography. Prone to wonder? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest. Husband, then ex-husband. Amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next. Drunk for years. Sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. I'm steering toward home. Hardly a poster child for anything. Anything that is but grace. And what exactly is grace? These pages are my final words on the matter. Grace is everything. I am Brennan, the witness. Now for many people, Brennan Manning's life might be seen as a failure. He failed in some sense to live up to his own values. His own expectations of himself, his own hopes and aspirations, he never could quite beat alcohol. He died uh, still struggling with alcohol. But he was somebody that really was, I believe, deeply convinced and convicted that at the foundation of everything lay the love of God. And it was that that kept him going. He said this, My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I don't know how you're doing as you hear me talk about Brennan Manning, whether his story fills you with joy at the fact that there's somebody who, even though they were deeply broken, just believed in the grace of God or whether there's a part of you The older brother that exists in every one of us who's like, ah, that's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame he couldn't really get it. I I hear both voices in myself. As I read his books, as I hear him speak. What does any of this have to do with Palm Sunday, which is after all what we're, as the church, coming to today? We've heard... Uh, readings about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And we heard Psalm 18, which speaks about that moment in advance, generations in advance of it happening. What does it have to do with Jesus' time in the wilderness, which is, after all, what we've been speaking about for the last four weeks as a church. And you remember we've been looking one by one at the different temptations. First week, we looked at the temptation that Jesus faced to bake bread or to make something of himself in his life. The temptation to make himself something. And we said that the antidote to that was actually simplicity. And then the week after, we said uh, the temptation Jesus faced was the temptation to make a scene, to draw attention to himself rather than drawing attention through himself to God. And we said that the uh, antidote to that was a life of chastity. 
And then last week, Will spoke about the temptation to build an empire, to build a name for himself rather than to live for God's name and God's glory. And we said, Will said, that the antidote to that was to live a life of receiving through waiting. What has that got to do with the life of Brennan Manning and the message of extravagant and extraordinary grace? How has the wilderness got anything to do with that? Well, it's my conviction that Jesus' ability to confront and to overcome every temptation is due to the fact that the loudest voice in his head was not the voice of Satan, but the voice of God, his Father. And what enabled Jesus to face down the temptation and the trial, the regret, the difficulty, the struggle, the opposition, was that Satan wasn't the voice that he was listening to beneath it all. He heard his voice, the voice of God, his Father. And there were loads of other voices that he could have been listening to. We arrive at Palm Sunday and we, we see a story, a picture of Jesus just surrounded by bedlam. What do we read? Verse 28 of Luke 19, if you have your Bible open. Otherwise, I think we have it on the screen. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill of the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead and we spin on. They get the... Uh, the, uh, they get the uh, Donkey, there's the, there's the word I'm looking for. And they arrive uh, to the threshold of Jerusalem, and it says this, verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, and this would be a downhill. They've been ascending all the way from Jericho, and now it's downhill from the Kidron Valley. It said the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for the miracles they'd have seen. There was a cacophony on Palm Sunday of voices, voices upon voices upon voices that Jesus had the opportunity to tune into and listen to. There were so many voices. We might say that this moment of Palm Sunday, in some ways it's the high point, the climax of Jesus' life and ministry. Finally, some public recognition. Dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the tax collectors and everyone else who's telling him he's this, he's that and the other. Expectations of his own disciples, expectations of the crowd. And finally, some credit. The high point, he's coming into Jerusalem and people are behind him. And this movement, folks, is going forward. Jesus has come a long way to get here. As I said, literally that's true. His disciples to climb uh, to Jerusalem would have had to go from Jericho. Now, for those of you uh, whose geography in the Middle East isn't so good, and by the way, just so you know, I read up on this, I don't have this in my locker. Jericho is the lowest point on the face of the earth. And so to get from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem, you have to climb a long, long way. A whole, and halfway through the journey, you reach sea level. How disappointing would that be? You're halfway through the journey, you think, amazing, I'm like at sea level. Ground zero, halfway through my journey, and then the next bit is a pretty significant climb as well. It is hot, it is dusty, it is uncomfortable. Jesus has come a long way to get to Jerusalem, to the cusp of Jerusalem. Then the, the journey begins to go downhill. He's not just come a long way. Physically, he's come a long way figuratively. Jesus has dealt with three years of the most extraordinary, extraordinarily complex human problems imaginable. He's been betrayed, 
He's about to be betrayed, but he's already been betrayed by the, those dearest to him. He's been, he's been misunderstood by his family. Hands up if you've ever been misunderstood by a family. Everyone should have their hand up, shoulder or above, for that one. He's known uh, rejection. He's known hardship. He's known sadness. He's known isolation. He's known joy. Absolutely. He's traveled a long way. He's come a long way. And maybe this is the high point. This is the moment where finally he gets the recognition he deserves. It says, doesn't it, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. The whole crowd. Oh, that had to feel good, didn't it? That had to feel good. Look, you read the Gospels up to this point. There's barely a moment where Jesus can get the whole crowd of his disciples to do anything. Really? I mean, do this? No. Do that? Not a good idea. Like the opposition for Jesus begins in his inner circle. And finally, the whole crowd, all of his disciples, are going for it. Jesus is winning the popularity contest. And what do they say? What do the whole crowd of his disciples say? They say this, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a quote taken directly from Psalm 118. Now Psalm 118 is a a Passover psalm. So around this time of year, the Jewish people would have it on their lips. They'd know it. And they'd be speaking it out all the time. Hey, isn't it amazing? Because the Passover was the time of God's great victory. And this Psalm 118 is all about God's great victory. It's about celebrating a time where God would show up and he would rout his enemies. And he would place a king in the center of it, a king who would rule justly. And so by speaking this psalm on their lips, what the people are saying is Jesus is that king. He's the one. And through him, God is about to achieve a victory that will end every single victory. These are the words that we see in Psalm 118. The stone, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. The old word is Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. With bows in hand, with palms in hand, join in the festal procession. So what they're doing by laying these palms down is to physically enact this psalm. It's not just enough to speak it, they have to act it out. They have to lay their worship in the form of their coats and their palms before Jesus. This is a moment of extraordinary worship. Gosh, it would have been easy to get carried away with that, wouldn't it? You imagine you've been struggling. Maybe you've had this at work. You've been struggling for some affirmation from your boss. You're working double what everyone else is working. You're doing your work and their work. And you're not getting any affirmation for it. And finally, your boss says, look, employee of the month, I'm delighted to tell you. This month is Johnny. Trinity treasure. Johnny, 
Amazing, my, we do this as a staff, we have Trinity Treasure once a month. The £10 Amazon voucher is coming to me, whatever it is for you in your workplace. Finally, some recognition. Be easy to get carried away with it, wouldn't it? And if you're listening for that voice, you will get carried away with it. But bear in mind that the voices that tell Jesus, that speak these words, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These same voices three days later will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And if you're listening to the crowd on the Sunday, you're going to really struggle on the Thursday. When the crowd changes the message, when the voices are saying a different thing. Jesus isn't tuned into the voices, even though I'm sure he was enjoying the moment. And that's extraordinary. Because Jesus could have done anything with this groundswell of popularity, couldn't he? Like he could have, he could have waltzed. I mean, Psalm 118 gives us a picture with bows in hand, joining the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. Jesus could have gone straight. He'd have had biblical precedent to go straight into the temple and take power. He probably, with this kind of, uh, with this kind of backing, could have had an assault on Rome's power in the middle of Jerusalem. Even on a donkey, that would have been possible. He could have kicked the Pharisees out. He could have got rid of the Sanhedrin, the the Sadducees and everyone else. You know, Jesus had enough popularity. He might even have been able to get a bill through Parliament for Brexit. (laughs) Yes, the Brexit joke got in there. (laughs) Hallelujah. (sighs) Yeah, he's not distracted from the mission at hand. He has a bigger picture because he's listening to a different voice. Jesus all along has been performing for a different audience. Not the audience of the crowd, which changes its mind here and there, but the audience of one, the audience of his father. Jesus is living out of a place of radical grace and acceptance. He understands that the truest thing about him is that he's a son of his father. It's like he's got a track in his mind on repeat way before Spotify was thought up or invented. And it is the soundtrack of the baptism experience he had at the beginning. This is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus knew at bedrock his father was pleased. And so when the voices were swelling and sounding around him, He was able to listen in to a different tune, a different sound, a different voice. He wasn't distracted or taken away. He knew his father's approval. That's what it's like to be the son of God. That's what it's like to be Jesus. And he is incredible. He is amazing. He's immense. He's unmatched. He is extraordinary. There is no one like him. There is no one else in heaven or on earth like Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things hold together. He holds the church together. He holds the world together. It's not that he is a part of reality, but all reality is a part of him. There's no one else like him. And yet, the journey of being a disciple of Jesus, the journey that you and I are invited into, whether we're in it now or not, is the journey of becoming like him. 
And so, even though he's unmatched and unmatchable, yet he's also a model for us. He's also a picture of what one day we will become. Do you know that? One day you will become like him. You'll be known fully even now as you're fully known. So it has to be the same. It's got to become the same for us too. We too are invited to listen to the voice of the Father rather than the voice of the crowd. And this is difficult. And it's impossible without an ongoing experience of the love of God. It's very difficult for every one of us. It's very difficult for me. I have lived, and part of this is, is my, you know, how do you explain your own, your own defense mechanism? It's part of who I am. It's how I've grown up. It's the family I've become part of. It's, it's who I've learned to be. My defense in life has been this song, this track going around in my head that if I perform, if I succeed, then I will be loved. And so I've gone out, if you like, into the far country to borrow an image from Luke 15. Trying to impress people. Impress people at school. Impress people on the football pitch. Impress people in environments like this. Just trying to impress people. Because when I succeed, when people pat me on the back for doing well, I feel a sense of, well, surge of endorphins and whatever else is going on in my own chemical world. If I perform, I'm loved. That is the lie that I've bought into. And I tell you where that has led me, historically and currently. It has led me. It only leads me to a place of exhaustion. Now, you may not have that script. You don't have that when you have another. Some of you will live by the, the maxim that if other people say you're okay, then you're okay. And you work furiously, not to succeed publicly, but maybe privately, to, to serve people furiously so that they'll say you're okay. You lay down your life for other people, but it's not necessarily from a place of overabundant love. It's so that you might be accepted by them. Or maybe you're somebody who's attracted to the, the idea of gaining power. Because it's through power that you feel, you, you, if you've got enough power over your situation, enough control of your situation, then you feel safe. You know, if every, if every eventuality is planned out 16 different ways before it happens, then you feel in control and therefore you feel safe. We all have different mechanisms for dealing with the world before us, different voices we're listening to. But God has a better voice for us. It's what it says in Galatians 4. Because you are his sons, and we could say sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you were his child, God has made you also an heir. You see, slaves have to perform. But sons, before they have to perform, they belong. Sons and daughters belong. Sons and daughters have privileges in the house. They have rights. They can wander in and wander out. They belong. And it's that belonging. That's, that, is, that, is, that is the core of everything. That is the place that each of us needs to arrive. A place where we know we belong. Where we hear the Father's voice. Where we know that the bedrock of reality is grace. And in order to get that, we have to get in God's face. 
I cannot have that from you. And you can never get that from me. Or from the person sitting next to you, or from your job, or from any other human relationship. Yes, we can help each other, absolutely. And our relationships can become signs, if you like, sacraments for God's grace to be passed between us, and yet there, there is something that just has to be given and received from God. And Brennan, Brennan had that. Listen to this. This is a story of a powerful encounter he had with the love of God. Now he arrived at preschool, and within hours he decided he was basically going to quit. It was too hard. <laughs> it is hard. And then he said this, he said, I decided to grab a prayer book and visit the 14 stations of the cross. 14, folks. Stations 1 to 11 remain a blur. Maybe they were the necessary prelude. Something to get me warmed up. The word synesthesia, never say you don't learn a word at church. The word synesthesia described what happened to me at station 12. Synesthesia is a union of the senses. One type of stimulation evoking the sensation of another. Station 12 is Jesus died on the cross. I was instructed to kneel, so I did. I remember feeling the solidity of the floor. Then the Angelus bell from a nearby monastery gave its noontime toll in the distance. And then I read these words on the page. Behold, Jesus crucified. Behold his wounds, received for love of you. His whole appearance betokens of love. His head is bent to kiss you. His arms are extended to embrace you. His heart is open to receive you. Oh, superabundance of love. Jesus, the Son of God, dies upon the cross that man may live and be delivered from everlasting death. The next thing I knew it was a few minutes after three o'clock in the afternoon. Just what happened in those three hours. I was a Marine after all. And soldiers don't just lose three hours. But I did. All I know is that I'd been in another magnificent realm. The religious scholar Mercia Eliade has referred to this realm as the golden world. I could not agree more. For three hours I found myself in terra incognita, unknown territory, unknown land. It was the very heart of Jesus Christ, the place of unconditional love. To have experienced just the terrain would have been sufficient. But then the more came. Jesus called my name. I still to this day have not revealed to anyone what I heard. It was not Richard or Richie, the names he had as a child, but a name by which Jesus alone knows me. The experience was like rolling waves, spring storms and bursting dams all in the same breath. Like the prophet Isaiah, it left me a man undone. The little child who heard, boys don't cry, throughout his life was then a man sobbing uncontrollably. It was in those golden moments that I was battered by wave after wave of the theology of delight that God not only loves me, but likes me. I was given a glimpse and assurance that long ago, we wound God's clock for good. We wound God's clock for good, sorry. It was not that I found the more, but rather the more found me. Christianity was not some moral code. It was a love affair, and I'd experienced it firsthand. The intimacy of those three hours exhausted me. I wobbled to my feet, stumbled back to my room, unpacked my bags, and went straight to bed. After that day, nothing has ever been the same. 
overwhelming experience of the love of God. Not every one of us is going to have experience just like that. <laughs> I've been praying for that person for 15 years or more. I haven't had an experience like that. Whether it's a torrent of the love of God or the day-to-day drip, 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 we have to get into the place where God can minister his love to our hearts. If we don't, we will end up exhausted. We will end up exhausted. And if we're not listening to that voice, it's because we're listening to other voices. Church, we need to quieten the other voices so we can tune into the only voice that counts, the voice that says, this is my son, my daughter, my beloved. In him or her, I am well pleased. Do you know that's true of you? Do you know that God not only loves you, but likes you? Do you know that he sees all of your brokenness? He sees all of your sin. He sees all of the things you're most ashamed of, the things you've done to yourself, the things you've done to other people. He sees your wounds. He sees your regrets. He sees your pain. And he says, I love you. I love you, the whole you, the whole thing, the whole thing. That's the voice. That's the voice of God. That is the voice that Jesus has come to represent fully on Palm Sunday and on the cross of Good Friday and in the empty tomb of Resurrection Sunday. That is the voice. And that is the voice that our world needs to hear. The voice of a father who is love. So will we listen to the voice of the crowds, the voice that says we've got to do more, we've got to be more, we've got to look better, we've got to look thinner, sharper, stronger, whatever. Or will we listen to the voice of our father, Brennan's words to close. Will we define ourselves radically as one beloved by God? This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. What script have you lived with? For me, I perform in order to be loved. But there's a, better, there's a better script. There's a better tune. St. Augustine put it like this. <laughs> Bear with me. Kia amasti me, fechisti me, amabilem. Kia amasti me, fechisti me, amabilem. In loving me, you made me lovable. In loving me, you made me lovable. Father, thank you.